Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me as always is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Schalkowski. Well, hello. Today, we thought it might be a nice idea to do a uh, another series in our trilogy of tales, except this time it's going to be a little bit of uh, Christmas tales. Christmas tales of yore, right? The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. So um, I'd like to begin talking a little bit about Christmas in Pittsburgh and how it was originally celebrated way back in 1700s, 1800s. Um, you know, going back, like, was there a Santa Claus in the 1700s? Was there not? I don't know. You know, like, that's what we wanted to find out. So I um, I came across a couple of really cool things. And this one made me uh, just, uh, it, it's just such a nice little tidbit, you know, from history that you wouldn't normally see, you wouldn't normally hear. But did you ever think to yourself, uh, your great-grandparents, did they write letters to Santa Claus? And yeah, they did. So I found, in uh, published in the Pittsburgh Press on the Christmas Eve, 1897, letters to Santa Claus. And now some of these people might actually be your great-grandmother or great-grandfather or grandparents. Uh, you might know them, might not. But whether you do or don't, it doesn't really matter because this uh, is pretty uh, fantastic and pretty cute. And I'm going to go ahead and read some of these letters. And these are straight from the Pittsburgh Press, 1897. And we'll begin with little Willie Mole of Atwood Street in Pittsburgh. He says, Dear Santa Claus, I am a little boy, three years old, and I want you to bring me something for Christmas. Bring me a milk cart, a gun, a football music box, and some candy and peanuts. <laughs> and then if you could bring my Aunt Sa- Sadie and the girls a cloak and Ben something too. Thank you. Another one. This Wait, is from Ben, just something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tom Chambers from 22 22nd Street in the city of Pittsburgh. I'm very good little boy, and my name is Tom. And I want a sled and a hobby horse and a little toy drum and a little tin horse. And don't forget to fill my stocking and put in my all-day sucker. Dear Santa, don't forget my little friend, Willie Morgan. He wants the same thing as me and a tin whistle. He lives at 23rd Street, Southside. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. But don't forget about him. That's right. How about this? uh, All the way from Wilmerding to the North Pole. Dear Santa Claus, I'm a little girl, 10 years old. I want a new dress and a new doll and some candy. My brother Mike might want some gum. He is li- easy, Mike. Easy, Mike. <laughs> he is liable and wants the earth. If you can't get down the chimney, run down the door. As Mike gets up bright and early, and he will let you in. Goodbye. <laughs> this was from little ten-year-old Flossie Mead of Wilmerding, PA. And what year is that? Eighteen ninety-seven. Here's another one. Dear Santa Claus, will you bring me a piano, a buggy, and a stove? I will hang up my stocking and fill it full for your friend, Annie Mazel of Pittsburgh, PA. Dear Santa Claus, bring me a new suit and an express wagon, and that is all I want. But my sisters, Pearl and Mildred, come next. Mildred would like a new dress and a doll with a new coat. Please be sure to bring Mildred something nice, too. 4803 Cypress Street in the city, Harry Sedell. Here's another good one. Uh, a little boy of three years old. I would like a hobby horse, a pair of shoes, a pair of mitts, and a cap. But be sure to send a hobby horse 
And don't forget where I live with my grandma, Mr. Joe Smith of number 77 Compromise Street, Allegheny City. Hobby horses were pretty popular. They sure were. Uh, Here's another one from uh, 137 Taggart Street, Allegheny City. Dear Santa Claus, I'm a little boy, six years old, and I would like you to bring me a toolbox, overalls, and a Christmas tree. Goodbye. Signed, Alfred Reed. 1897. Some of these kids. Okay, remember, this is Christmas Eve is when this appeared in the papers and was written. Santa Claus. This one little boy asked for a Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. This is Christmas Eve. That's all he wanted for Christmas. Nothing else. Nothing more. Some of these people only wanted a giant lollipop. <laughs> and that's they it. Could have all day. Well, and not only did they not have a... Uh, a uh you know the the funds you know a lot of these types of things uh i mean there's another here this is from a, a lily paltry ferryman of east end pittsburgh she just says all i want is a handkerchief and please if you can bring me candy and that's it those two things and to think about how far we've gone in society from wanting a handkerchief or just wanting a christmas tree and that's it to here's a list of 10 things, you know, I want from Santa Claus yeah. and it must be these 10 things or Santa's not real. Right. Uh, and what you slowly find out is that, uh, what Christmas means to each and every single one of us. And you're, uh, I learned the lesson best kind of like we mentioned on our Santa Claus episode, which if you haven't listened to, make sure you go and listen to it because, uh, it showed us so many things about ourselves, let alone a man portraying Santa Claus. Uh, and it's the spirit of Christmas and how it doesn't take a lot to really, you know, celebrate a good, nice Christmas. It really could be as simple as a simple Christmas tree. And uh, that's really going to lead us into our last story, which we'll bring up. Uh, but first, I want to go into, have you ever seen Miracle on 34th Street? Any version of it? Yeah. So, you know, the basic concept of it is that Macy's hires a man or who is portraying Santa Claus and... Um, you know, a little girl who does not believe in Santa Claus and, of course, eventually gets uh, thrown into uh, the loony bin, basically, or try to be arrested, you know, for being Santa Claus. And and through the uh, the U.S. mail system, all the letters to Santa Claus were addressed to him personally and were delivered to the judge's desk, you know, on Christmas or whatever, and declaring that this man is indeed Santa Claus or what kids believe to be Santa Claus. Well, this was 1947. This is when the original movie came out and the remake, which was in what 19, mid 1990s. Yeah, with uh, you know the guy from Jurassic Park, <laughs> um, Sam Neill. No, no. Uh, the uh, oh, the 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 lawyer. Yeah, the uh, the old the old man. You know the. Uh, oh yeah, uh, doctor. The doctor from Jurassic. Doctor Hammett. Doctor Hammett. Yes, that's right. Maybe I don't know. Oh man, I, I can't believe I'm. Running out my Jurassic Park references already. Hasn't been that long. <laughs> Anyways, 93. 93. Yeah, I guess you're right. So that was a long time. But has the name Michael Mosmano ever come across your radar before? Only because of you. Well, thank you. But in, uh, he was a phenom. Now, let me give you a little backstory about who Judge Michael Mosmano was. Okay. Um, on, in his obituary, by the way, the Post-Gazette described him as one of the state's most colorful and controversial public figures who brought every major public issue a passionate, if times, coyote concern to the underdog. Coyote, spelled 
Q-U-I-X-O-T-I-C. Coyotic. A coyotic concern for the underdog. Or yeah. Don Quixote. That's right, like Don Quixote. Uh, in other words, a passion uh, where there was seems to the average outside observer to no reason to have this passion for it, but he did anyways. And that is what made him unique. A young lawyer, right, grew up in Stowe Township. Right down the road. That's right. Yeah, he was part of the defense team that ultimately unsuccessfully led to the appeal of the death sentences opposed on anarchists Sacco and Vanzetti in the 1920s. Well, that's the famous, the Italian immigrants. That's right. That were executed, and there's a lot of controversy behind that. Well, you know, think about it was 100 years ago, not even 100 years ago, when this happened, this kind of anti-immigrant thing. Uh, Mosmono being a Italian-American himself, passionately for his entire life, supported Italian-American claims, beginning right then with Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh, he later went to the grave <laughs> defending the position that Columbus discovered America, and there was oh. no way you were going to convince him otherwise. Well, you can't get everything right. While doing this, he also fo- focused on uh, a private law enfor- enforcement force that was accusing terrorizing workers, and his efforts in that cause was way he wrote a short story, which eventually became a Hollywood movie in the 1930s, because there was a... Uh, an actual coal and iron police, which were like a private group of law enforcement trying to, you know, bring the people down, and he fought to end that. Uh, but what made him uh, kind of national fame was in 19, and well, in, when he was 34 years old, 1931, he became the youngest judge in Allegheny County. He was nominated by both the Democrats and the Republicans and endorsed by all of the labor unions here in Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, but then uh, World War II breaks out, right? He goes to, uh, he joins up with the U.S. Navy, and during World War II, he happened to be uh, part of the recovery team at none other than Adolf Hitler's actual bunker in Germany. Uh, became the lead prosecutor for Nazi war criminals at the Nuremberg trial. He was one of the judges at Nuremberg, and uh, he even years later held the prosecution witness during the trial of in Israel of Adolf Eichmann. And Eichmann was the one who oversaw the deportation of Jews to the death camps, right? Um, he, of course, was hung in 1962. But aside from all that, he also served on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court from 1951 until his death in 1968, right, where he set a record for the number of dissenting opinions filed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the reason why we're talking about him on our Christmas episode— now. He's a fascinating guy just in general. I mean, we could probably do an entire show on him. His collection of records, including interviews with the the, the highest up and most secretive of all Nazis during the uh, World War II era, because he was being a judge from Nuremberg, had personal access to all this information and interviewed like Hitler's secretary, his doctors, you know, the, the works. All that information is actually held at Duquesne University in their archives. And we had Tom White on our show in Halloween time, who's the curator, you know, of the uh, of the Duquesne Special Collections there. And he brought me back behind the scenes to see some of Judge Michael Marsmano's things, including Hitler's actual pillowcase and signed photo of Eva Braun that sat on his nightstand, which is somehow sitting in the archives at Duquesne in University. Duquesne, <laughs> yes, in Uptown. Yes. So a lot of weird stuff behind closed doors if you know where to look, uh, including that. But Masmano, a legend in his own right, in 1936, okay, in fact, he was, his flamboyant behavior in the court system was so uh, famous that 
most people around, uh, you know, you'd come up with these kind of strange court cases, would call them musmantics, right, as a terminology. And this was the case on December 22nd, 1936, where he legally ruled that Santa Claus was a legal and authentic entity in the Allegheny County, in the court of Allegheny County. Now, this was a game-changing stance, right? This was a a uh, an event that would later obviously be used in Hollywood movies, including Miracle on 34th Street, 1947. And uh, what kind of makes it unique is that uh, never uh, since has the court case of Santa Claus been tried and, and won in court. And uh, I'm going to read to you the actual legal ruling that he was still on the books in the county of Allegheny County, and this was from Judge Michael Masmano on December 26, 22, 1936, where he said, Thus, after considering all the evidence in this case, which is made up of the testimony of the seasons, the attestations of the human heart and the exhibits presented by Mother Nature, and after listening to the rosy-cheeked laughter of the December winds laden with the glittering snow, each flake a, patter, a pattern of beauty and harmony, we conclude and find that Santa Claus is a reality. We find further that without him, life would be dull and cheerless, and that with him, the heart is merry and the spirit gay as life as should be. He argued that there are many famous and celebrated characters who are real to us, as in the flesh and blood people of our daily context, and yet they have not come within the range of our physical vision. And he's talking about people like Uncle Sam or Cupid or some of these other kind of mythical creatures who, if you think about it hard enough, Uncle Sam is a reality, right? And he argued this in front of a court uh, about Santa Claus. Therefore, in the view of the foregoing, we hereby order a judge and decree that anyone within our jurisdiction who questions the authenticity and genuineness of Santa will be declared in contempt of court, and he will be committed to the Bastille. There he should be kept in a dungeon, vile, until his soul expands and the spirit of Christmas enters therein, where he then shall be released, provided he shall shout with his old lungs and whole heart, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And so ends the story of the legality of Santa Claus in Pittsburgh. So yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. This brings us to one of my, maybe one of my most favorite stories I've ever found about Christmas in Pittsburgh. Now, I, I've been on some other shows, and I, I've talked about live on the air even here in KDK, but uh, lots of different cool little tidbits from Christmas of the 1830s or, you know, how they did celebrate it, which was with fireworks, by the way. <laughs> That's how they celebrated the Christmas season in early Pittsburgh history. Uh, but I always heard of this kind of story, this little this tale, right, of a, uh, a Jewish man named Jacob Gusky who uh, acted as if he was uh, Santa Claus in Pittsburgh history. Now, that's kind of like just a little byline, you know, or a little kind of short little story that I always had on my radar for a couple years now and, and I've always uh, thought about it, but I, I never really did research into it until recently. And this guy's story after reading about him and learning more about him, which there is no real published history of this guy. Um, he does appear in a few uh, History of Pittsburgh books as owning the a department store, uh, because it was uh, one of the biggest uh, department stores in Pittsburgh history, if not the first department store in Pittsburgh history. 
but it also was a um, uh, later in life after his death, which we'll talk about, um, became one of the uh, the first Jewish orphanages here in Pittsburgh, uh, which was a needed thing. Uh, and a lot of these uh, orphanages, remember, were, were run by Catholic institutions. So a group of Jewish kids, there was a kind of a specialized need for uh, to keep the faith and, you know, to do the the same type of uh, programs that you do today. In fact, the the orphanage that his family created later on would uh, eventually become uh, not only a, an orphanage of itself called the Gusky Hebrew Orphanage, which stood on Perrysville Avenue until 1943, but today we would know it as the Jewish Family and Children's Services. So it kind of developed into this as time went on. Who is Jacob Gusky? How did he accumulate this wealth, and what makes him Pittsburgh's Jewish Santa Claus? Any ideas? Other than the the fact that I've mentioned previously that he uh, delivered toys. To yeah, the only thing family. I know about him is from what you told me, that he delivered toys. to. Wayne, do you hear this guy's story? <laughs> okay. Uh, losing his father himself at an early age. He was born in 1845. Okay, he was adopted by a man named Solomon Cohen, uh, his stepfather, who was a cutter at a clothing factory. Okay, he uh, brought him up kind of in the trade and as a, an apprentice as well to the printing business. So this is eighteen pre Civil War, uh, the printing business, and he had some kind of knack for the marketing and uh, early marketing, especially when it came to the idea of a department store or clothing store with basically saying almost kind of whatever it takes in the newspapers and also doing in in real life whatever it takes to make the customer happy. And if you uh, do some research in the early papers, there's no doubt that you'll find ads for this department store called, uh, which was later be called Gusky Department Store. It was located down on Market Street between 3rd and 4th, okay? Uh, the PBG place is there today, uh, which is kind of a nice... Uh, you know, I guess you could say a nice homecoming, you know, that we do celebrate the seasons there. Yeah, with uh, the, um, what the... With the tree, yeah. And the festival, or the um, the Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Santa Claus is from around the world. Yeah, exactly. The Santa Claus from the one around the world is uh, a best way to put who Jacob Gusky really was. And um, so he leaves his, uh, he was studying up in New York, okay, as a clothing and a cutter and also an apprentice to a printer. Uh, his father-in-law sends him here to Pittsburgh because they have a, a store that was operating in the same location called Hanauer Han Store, and they were defaulting a lot of their customers and the customer orders. So he sends his his uh, adopted son, Jacob, here to Pittsburgh, sees what's going on, right? Uh, he tells his father-in-law, look, these people are kind of in a bad position, but the market is such a, a good market here in Pittsburgh. We should buy this company and operated as kind of like a distribution facility for your clothes coming from New York. So like, and so they did. And uh, it became S. Cohen and Company. The company part being Jacob Gusky, right? And literally through the advent of of advertising, he was the first person to take a full-page ad out in the papers by literally buying all of the columns that you'd see on like the Help Wanted page. Yeah. And just putting his you know, ads for the department store throughout the entire page because uh, this was, like, unheard of back in the day. Um, this was in uh, – now they, they they started developing really good, you know, uh, clothes and, and people were successful, but it was the way he treated the people there that really made it a, uh, a transformative experience in early Pittsburgh shopping. 
Now, when I say that he was the first to use full-page ads, he was also the first store to, uh, to have a freight elevator and a passenger elevator, okay, in Pittsburgh. Even though lights in the time advent of early electricity were kind of dim, he installed 13 arc lights powered by his own steam plant and, dy- and dynamos within the building at Market Square to power his store. By 1886, his store was heated by gas, employed over 150 salesmen, over 210 cash boys, which I later found out were underage kids that they hired to run the cash register. Well, you know, labor laws at that time but were a little lax. There is a big, bigger reason why he would do all this. And uh, they even had dining rooms there, and they had a full porter staff. And, I mean, it was the works. They, in fact, close to 500 people this man employed. Well, I wonder if he was one of the first to have a dining room because the diners in department stores later became famous. Yeah, Woolworths, you know, and and the TikTok, you know, and all and all that, you know, uh, did did. And I guess he is one of the founders and the kind of originators of a lot of this type of stuff. This is pre Kaufman's we're talking, you know. So uh, Kaufman worked for him, in fact. <laughs> so um, for a brief time, and uh, but while he might be known as this revolutionary businessman uh, when it came to his clothes and the department store and the way he ran his department store, he was better known for his philanthropies. Now, he understood as a poor kid growing up, as an orphan himself, you know, later to be adopted, but understood the kind of perils and the tribulations that a a little orphan kid would go through, especially during the holidays. Yeah. And uh, he made an effort, a lot of the times secretly, so a lot of people didn't even know he was doing these things, but one thing he did was... uh, Every single month, he would uh, reach out to the Association for the Improvement of the Poor and send them a hefty check, no questions asked, just put towards the use of poor people in Pittsburgh. And later on Thanksgiving, he developed, uh, he delivered a turkey to every single home, every single poor family that was on any list in Allegheny County as being considered poor. Uh, and they kept a like, register of these things. I saw one year he donated 1,700 turkeys. <laughs> okay, this is a time period. You were talking about 1880 here. I mean, that's a lot today. That is a lot today. Um, and so now he, to give you a time frame here, okay, 1879, he eventually convinces his father-in-law or his stepfather to sell the business interests to him, and it becomes Gusky's department store for the first time in 1880. 1880 is where he started kicking off all these ideas. Uh, 1881, he began this new idea. Now, this idea was so big and so revolutionary in early Pittsburgh history uh, that reading about it, uh, even today, I was I was going through the newspaper archives and just typing in December of 1881, December of 1882, and just seeing any kind of mention about Gusky's or Gusky's department store or Jacob Gusky. And uh, you would not believe some of these... Uh, these things that I, I saw that he did. I mean, it was like, <laughs> so put it this way. He put an, a full-page ad out in the newspapers, okay? And this was in the beginning of December, like December 5th. He put out a, a full-page ad saying for all kids to write to Santa Claus in care of Jacob Gusky and to be delivered to his department store where, on full display, he would gather toys Okay, and you now he specifically he was talking originally about orphanages, and, uh, and the many ones that were in Allegheny City and Pittsburgh. Because don't forget, we were two different cities at that time period. Yeah, um, would have each individual kid 
write a letter to Santa, like I was reading earlier today, right? With this, you know, these are from 1897. There, there wasn't any in the paper from 1881 or 1882, but you get the general idea. Like, I'll want a little dolly or a hobby horse or whatever. And uh, being an orphan, you know, there was a chance you might not get dinner. Okay, dinner alone could be your Christmas gift. A nice dinner, right? Instead of porridge every day, you could get a turkey, you know, meal or something, just something a little bit different. And guess what he did? <laughs> Ready? Um, answered each and every single one of the letters from every single orphan in the city of Pittsburgh and the city of Allegheny by name, gathered toys from his department store, whether that be a hobby horse or a doll or whatever the kid asked for, box it up put a label on it with that kid's name on it to whatever orphanage they belong to and would pack it eventually by Christmas, pack it in a wagon. Okay. And when I say wagon, he decided to, in 1883, for example, there was over 40 wagons filled to the top with toys. Okay. Following a, uh, a, a Santa Claus led Oh, carriage, one horse open sleigh, literal one horse open sleigh with sometimes eight horses, okay, <laughs> leading the parade. And uh, would pack, and then he would be on there with Santa Claus and Jacob Gusky himself leading the charge with 40 wagons of toys, each individually named, right, to every single orphan in Pittsburgh. But that's not where it stopped, okay? So he, he also had 20 more wagons that were filled with employees that would help distribute the gifts. He would also have uh, people that were just curious that wanted to go visit and just bring some cheer to some of these kids that, you know, every day was like a struggle. And um, I didn't print it out, uh, which I should have, but because it was just way too long to read. But there's actually a report in the newspapers uh, each Christmas about what happened in each and every single one of these orphanages when he showed up to the door. So let me give you a, uh, a quick rundown of some of the orphanages that he visited. Um, his very first stop. Okay. Now, you know, please apologize. I'm apologizing in advance because some of these terminologies for the orphanages are a little outdated. Yeah, which we covered in episode two when we had Rick <laughs> yes, back the on. Home for the crippled children, yes. You know, uh, well, what do you think is the the second? So the first place was a Ridge Avenue Orphan Asylum, okay, with an unfortunate name of Asylum. Yeah. What do you think is the second place he visited? The Colored Orphan Society of Greenwood Avenue. And then the Women's Christian Home on Locust Street. Then United Presbyterian Orphans Home on Monterey Street. The Allegheny Day Nursery. Allegheny General Hospital. The Protestant Boys for Home. The Home for the Friendless. What a sad, <laughs> sad name for a building. The Home for the Friendless. The Little Sisters of the Poor. The Home of the Good Shepherd. St. Joseph's. Okay, these were all in Allegheny City. Uh, in Pittsburgh, in St. Michael's. The Homeopathic Hospital, the Children's Temporary Home, mm. St. Paul's Orphan Asylum, West Penn Hospital, okay, the Little Sisters of Poor in Bloomfield, the German Protestant Orphans Asylum, the Children's Aid Society. So this gives you a good general idea, okay, of some of these places. And some of these kids, there would be 150 kids all under the age of 10, okay, at some of these orphanages, ranging in age from two months to 10 years, okay. And we have to realize that life expectancy at that time was kind of short. Yeah. And so it wasn't that these were a bunch of bad parents. They right. were 
probably passed away from one illness or another. or something, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, some kind of illness or legitimately, uh, a lot of them were, uh, like, for example, German orphans asylum, uh, foreigners, uh, immigrants, families who worked in the steel mills, who couldn't afford a family of five, ten kids or whatever they had. Um, you know, my great-grandparents had ten kids. They all worked on the farm. You know, my great, my, my regular grandfather went to work at age 14 in the coal mills, you know? So it's like... Uh, you did whatever, and he was the youngest of the family. So who knows what, what the older brothers and sisters did to help contribute to the society, you know, of living in a farm. Um, but a lot of kids did not make it out. Uh, my own grandmother on my mother's side of the family uh, lost her mother when she was a little girl. Um, and uh, it was the stories I remember her telling me you know, from, you know, this is circa 1930s I'm talking about of just not having a mother, you know, and having a father who, you know, slowly was struggling to support two kids on his own. You know, he worked for the Post-Gazette, in fact, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, my great-grandfather did, uh, later went insane <laughs> and, uh, you know, was committed to Mayview. Um, and this was while my grand my grandmother and her brother, her little brother, uh, were little kids. So what do you do? You know, she tells me stories about going to uh, the YMCA, uh, or no, it was the Salvation Army Fresh Air Camp, they called it which were like these weird little fresh, they thought fresh air was just good for the soul, right? So they would uh, put you in these camps and and that's where you'd live. Well, that's not far from today. I mean, fresh air, yeah. they say is good for you, but obviously it wasn't right. where yeah. you lived. <laughs> right. Kind yeah. of, you just go visit for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Or those, those couple of days would turn into a week and those weeks might turn into a month and then you might never leave. And that was the fate of a lot of these kids in some of these orphanages. Uh, kids who had no hope of a happy Christmas gift by any other means. Their Christmas gift could literally be a meal, you know, a fancier meal than they were usually given. Um, you did not have more than one pair of clothes. You had one pair of clothes. The shoes you came in with, those are the ones. And most likely you didn't have any shoes at all. And if you did, they probably had holes, you know. So to get just a brand new pair of shoes was a big deal. And remember, you know, heating and ventilation was not... Now, let me tell you Up a story uh, about Thanksgiving time. Uh, a woman who, with five kids of her own uh, was uh, from England, okay? And she was wandering around downtown and happened to stop in. And Jacob was going in, you know, standing by Gusky's department store. Uh, Jacob was walking in, saw her and her kids standing out front, just looking cold and miserable, and asked him what the problem was. And she told him that her. She came over from England, and her husband deserted her when she got here, and she's left with nothing, and she has no clothes and no food. And and uh, he said, you know what? Um, he, he comes in, grabs one, somebody from his department store, and says, you know, get them all the clothes they need. Um, buy them a plane, you know, a, a ticket for a boat uh, if they want that. Give or them a, a hot plane. meal, you know. Yeah, <laughs> a bipedaled you know, uh, airship, you know. <laughs> so, a dirigible. Yeah, here's a ride, a ticket for the Hindenburg. But anyways, he, uh, these are the types of things he did. Another time I found in the papers, by the way, uh, a woman was caught stealing from his department store. And rather than throw her in jail and sue her for the $250 worth of clothes that she stole from him, he gave it to her and said and welcomed her back with open arms and even offered her a job. This is the kind of man Jacob Gusky was. <laughs> now, he was, at this time period, 35 years old. Well, let's also establish that he played Santa Claus, basically, mm -hmm. and was not a Christian. That, that gets the whole point of the story. A Jewish man 
uh, adopted by a Cohen family, okay, Jacob Gusky, uh, uh, an orphan himself and, and of the Jewish faith, in fact, a member of the Tree of Life Synagogue here in Pittsburgh, <laughs> which I found out in his obituary today. Um, a man who goes by, uh, a, you would not know his name unless you walked by the Allegheny Courthouse today, looked in the side walls, and you'll see this bronze plaque on the walls of Jacob Gusky, sure enough. Well, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, but what was the perception of uh, a Jewish person back in that day? Do we know? Yeah. Uh, the Hill District uh, used to be called Jew Hill. Okay? Uh, it was segregated. Um, Jewish people, while being welcomed into certain areas of life, uh, department stores, you know, um, tailoring, uh, certain types of jobs, uh, you would not be welcome doing... You know, being the owner of some kind of massive industrial plant or some kind of big type of job in Pittsburgh. He was accepted? Yeah, because of his generosity and um, him doing these good deeds without, no, remember, the, 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 the important message we learned from Santa Claus himself uh, a couple weeks ago, that it doesn't take a red suit and a white beard uh, to be Santa Claus. We, right. You, me, everybody, you know, could have a little bit of Santa Claus in them. And that, I guess, goes for religion, too. Everybody, thousands of years, have welcomed in the winter solstice, right, as a celebration, as a time for, you know, renewance, you know, renewal of life, you know, and uh, uh, the birth of the next season coming, okay? And every kind of culture and every kind of area all over the world celebrates what they call Christmas in a different way. But it's all generally the same concept. Yeah. Uh, uh, of giving, spending it's, time with your family. And be you know? good to each other. Mm-hmm. You can use Santa Claus as a catalyst to giving more it, important it, than, than getting. And yeah. I think as you get older, you realize that because when I see my kids open something on Christmas mm-hmm. Day and they love it or it's something they didn't expect, that's when you become Santa Claus that's for right. a minute. That's right. You know, uh, and obviously Santa Claus always has the better gifts. But that's right, Daddy Claus. You know, always pulls through. <laughs> so the, um, but yeah. So you, um, but that's true. I mean, like what? I mean, remember these list of homes that I was talking about? The German Protestant home. Does this sound like a Jewish orphanage to you? It sounds like he didn't discriminate. The little against sisters anything. of the poor. You know, um, these. Well, are... didn't you mention a, a colored? Yeah. Now, in eighteen eighty. Okay, he that was the second stop, you know, before the Protestants even, and before the uh, you know the German Methodist churches and all these other, uh, which you would think would be you know religious based orphanages. Um, now, granted, there was no Jewish orphanage, uh, so that's why he donated to all these types of things. But you ready for this crazy story? While at some of these places, like the Home for the Friendless, that sad. Unfortunate named place, the home for the friendless. He uh, he shows up right, and knowing already that all the kids were going to be there because he already had you know presents ready for them with their names on it that he would literally hand from the back of the cart. Hey, where's Joe? You know, here's this is for Joe, and it has his name on it, right? And that's the toy that he actually wanted that he wrote Gusky's for. That's, I mean, <laughs> you know? uh, the elation on their face, and you, is some people couldn't even handle it when they would see him in person, like or just hear him not going down the road. Now, remember, forty wagon cart fulls 
led by a eight-teamed horse, you know, one-horse open sleigh with Santa Claus himself ringing the bells all throughout Allegheny City. And, and this is he's in his early 30s to mid 30s. Early 30s, early 30s. He's uh, in fact 35, you know, so uh mid 30s, I guess you could say. Um he started this in 1881, okay, 1882, he continued it this time it was even bigger. Uh 1883 it was even bigger, 1884, of course. But a nice little tidbit I found was uh, at this particular home for the friendless. He shows up and, uh, and hands out presents to over 70 orphans, okay, little boys and little girls, all, you know, under the age of 10. Um, but then he notices that there's about a dozen or so old women and old men there as well. Because the home for the friendless is where you would send people who don't have any family left or uh, an older Friends. person who couldn't afford to live on their own anymore. You know, they would send them to these homes. Um, and that's where you spend the rest of your life, you know, unless someone could somehow adopt you as a 75-year-old man, you know, or a little old lady, uh, you know, into your home. And that did not happen. No. Um, so the uh, you were, back in that time period, either kind of put in these places by your family, uh, or if you didn't have family, at least there was a place to go. Uh, it, is, it is an important thing in Pittsburgh and all over across the country that we are lacking <laughs> today. We do not have these type of free homes for the old or the sick, and the, I mean, the way that they did them. I mean, that was so much money put into these orphanages eventually uh, to where you didn't actually have to have them. And, and the advent of adoption and uh, foster parenting uh, came after this. So yeah, that's why you don't have as many orphanages. But at one time, there was over 100 orphanages in Pittsburgh and Allegheny uh, alone. I mean, I wonder if there's 100 in the country now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he shows up. All the little boys and little girls are taken care of. And a little old lady comes up to him and goes, please, sir, if you're Santa Claus, what can you bring me? I'm cold. And he goes, I have just a thing for you. He has another cart that's for specifically people who are older living in these homes. And sure enough, gives all the women a black cashmere dress for free <laughs> and all the men cardigan sweaters. How did this guy make money? <laughs> right. He gave it all away. So he's at the peak, right? He's 40 years old now. This is 1886, okay? He's 40. Um, he's going about his business. Um, come around his birthday time period, he starts getting sick, okay? His birthday is in middle of July. He uh, starts coming down with a bad cold. and later, later turns into pneumonia. He uh, even moves to Florida for a bit to try to see if the, you know, the weather may change it a little bit. And there was nothing really happening. You know, he actually even came back to Pittsburgh and I uh, was going to see what was, uh, you know, what was going on here. I mean, he was still a young man, still involved in the business, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, while on a streetcar, tripped, and his pants got caught in the back, and he was dragged over 40 yards while having pneumonia on a cobblestone street somewhere in Allegheny City. Um, and this just made him basically bedridden. So uh, his condition worsened. And this by this time, it was October, okay, of 1886. Oh, so he's been dealing with this for months now. Starts in like July, you know, by October, he's so weak, right, that he decides to spend his last days going to New York. And because he got a lot of his shipments and a lot of his clothing and items from New York. And uh, some of his family also, his adopted family, owned uh, other clothing emporiums and other things by this time period. And toy manufacturers. And personally ordered all the toys for the Christmas of 1886, only to die a week later. So before Halloween, he makes plans, because knowing that he's going to die, to give the kids of Pittsburgh one last Christmas, 
right, held by Santa and his team of wagons and sleighs and presents. And the stories that you read about in 1886 and Christmas are uh, so sad. This girl, it ends with this girl at uh, the, uh, an orphan asylum on Troy Hill, which has later become North Catholic High School. At the time, it was an orphanage. And it ends up with this little girl coming up to greet Santa Claus and uh, trying to express her thanks to Jacob Gusky, you know, who's, who just died, you know, uh, and she couldn't even get a word out. Uh, it was saying, you know, and like the gifts were still all coming from him knowing that he wasn't around anymore, you know, <laughs> to share the stuff. Yeah. And uh, that he somehow pre-planned it all, you know, was uh, insane. Such a uh, a story. I mean, 40 years old, 1886, he passes away. Um, his wife and a son-in-law uh, also become a, who became a Pittsburgh department store magnet in their own right, carried on the tradition for just a few more years before in 1891, I believe it is, they decided to uh, kind of stop. Well, they actually started running out of money because they gave it all away. Now, uh, they continued doing the Thanksgiving drive, you know, giving turkeys out to families in need through the course of this entire time period. But with the money they had left, his widow decided in the 1890s to build a, a new orphanage here in, in on Perrysville Avenue called the Gusky Hebrew Orphanage and Home. And this was a, a first Jewish orphanage in the city of Pittsburgh. And uh, with all the money, she uh, decided to give, you know, everything she possibly can to the city of Pittsburgh, all in the name of good, you know. She even donated a uh, an elephant, Pittsburgh's first elephant, <laughs> okay. At the zoo. At the zoo, Highland Park Zoo. Uh, she uh, They bought the guy, you know, the elephant, he came here. They actually used to give him rides on Jacob Gusky's elephant. It was like a big deal. Like, and uh, even when... The elephant became old, they said, in the 1930s, <laughs> right? It lived for a long time. Yeah, um, pachyderms can last a while. Yeah, that there was a, uh, even as an old man, you know, kids always considered him like this big old favorite, you know, that's Jacob Gusky there in the body of an elephant, and they would feed him peanuts, you know? And uh, his kind of legacy went on, but not uh, in the story books or the history books that we read. I mean, this is a story that, I mean, what do you think of the story? I mean, this is like something that, I've never heard of, you know, uh, of a man anywhere doing this type of generosity, literally for the whole, like the heart, like his whole heart he put into helping these kids, you know, orphanages, never asking for a single thing in return, literally becoming a real Santa Claus with kids writing him letters, right, and and, and, and actually following through with the promises. I think it represents the true meaning of the season. Yeah. Um, and... This Pittsburgh man embodies that message of generosity, and it's hard to fathom how generous he was. Yeah. You know, we, you know, a majority of us, you know, the people listening right now, we probably try to consider ourselves generous. We try to help out where we can. Right. But to the level that this man did it <laughs> yeah. in the 18, 1880s. 1880s yeah is just astounding here's even another, by today's standards yeah here, here's another little tidbit his uh he, for kids that weren't orphans you know what happened to those kids you know did he just forget those kids all together he just it's like hey, you know what only yeah, orphans i take care about you know no you ready for this he invited that every child would come to gusky's department store could see santa's helpers making or preparing the gifts for the orphans and while there each and every single individual child 
would receive a box of the finest chocolate candies known to exist at the time period. They had Sarah's back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fundraising. Um, but he told adults in the newspapers uh, that if you don't have a kid, find a nephew, a niece, bring them. Okay, If you don't have a nephew and niece, find some homeless kids on the street and bring them to me. And I adopt give, them. Yeah. <laughs> but he would give each person a box of the finest chocolates available the money could buy. And uh, he even made it a, uh, a requirement that you were not allowed to enter his store at Christmas and during the month of December unless you were accompanied at least by one child. Hmm. <laughs> that he was, could, no matter what, at least provide you with just a gift of candy, which clearly 10, 15 years later in 1897, you know, I'm reading these, these lists of what kids want in Pittsburgh. Some people only want a little bit of candy in a stocking. Well, I found it funny that, not funny, haha, but in one of the letters you wrote, I think somebody wanted nuts or something. Yeah. And then how, you know, um, 40 years later, they're feeding this elephant peanuts. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's named after yeah, this elephant. gentleman. Yeah. So I'm going to leave you with a uh, an epitaph, yeah, which is written on the actual bronze tablet at the Allegheny Courthouse. So if you go there and visit that, you know, the giant Christmas tree there during Christmas season, or if you go there in the middle of July, it doesn't matter what time you go because it's always on the wall. Luckily, you know, this is on the wall. It still stayed there because it was put there in the 1930s. Although a lot of people probably don't realize because this is what it says on there. And it uh, doesn't go into this whole story, you know, of, of, of what he did and the generosity, which we should all take from uh, this story. I mean, like, I'm reading this guy. It inspired me. Man, if I had a million bucks, you know, uh, or if there's some kind of philanthropist out there listening and you have money and you need something to do with that money or somewhere to put it to good use. Yeah, give us some and then give the I, rest. Well, I tell you what. All bad things you could say about Henry Clay Frick, okay? The one thing he did, which was really smart in my opinion, was he had a lot of money and he gave it all to John Brashear in order for John Brashear himself, who had no education, no schooling, no nothing, other than just a a, a nice self-made man, to distribute to all Pittsburgh public schools with his discretion of what that money should be used for. Not Frick's, Brashear's discretion. So, uh... <laughs> If, I'm serious. If you can find money and you want to find some good ways to share it, um, be that hidden Santa Claus. I tell you, so many kids, thousands of kids, thousands. And I'm talking one time they said that his, his present total was over 2,500 individual presents, each labeled to each and every single individual in every orphanage in Pittsburgh. It still blows my mind just to say it out loud. <laughs> well, I think for the, the general population, it would be more of a, you know, just take 1% of yeah. What Gusky did and one percent. Maybe you know, just hold a door open for somebody. Any way you can help. Yeah. A little old lady in the parking lot at a giant eagle just offered to take the cart back for them. Right. Um you know, these type of simple gifts, you know, simple gifts is the key, you know. And it's the uh like 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 you said, you know, just a little box of candy could make a world of difference to the person who, you know, is in need. And or a pair of shoes. One pair of shoes. You know, I, 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 when I lived in Los Angeles, I did make an effort, you know, not during the holiday season, all year long to help the homeless. You know, if I ever saw somebody, I'd give them a bag of clothes, you know, like here, you, you get this bag of giant bag of clothes. These are all for you. You, whatever you want to do with them, 
to do with them, but they're for you. Is that because you look homeless? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I'm one of you, you know. So, But I realized that I'm only one step away from becoming one of you. Yeah, you never know. You never know. And, and, and I hopefully, if that would ever happen to any one of us, hopefully there's someone out there that would be able or willing to lend a helping hand. Sometimes you need it. And Christmas time, you know, why I bring this up at Christmas, because that's the time you talk about it. But, you know, in June, you know, you find someone who needs help, help them, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this this month with our Christmas themed episodes, Mm -hmm. but help somebody and try to put yourself in their situation because you never know if you could be in that situation. And if you are, hopefully somebody will be there to help you. That's right. Pay it forward. No uh, saying could be... uh said better about this man Jacob Gusky, the Pittsburgh's Jewish Santa Claus so let me read you his epitaph which so nicely is on the bronze plaque at the Allegheny Courthouse his charity knew not the bounds of either race or creed to make others happy gave him his life's greatest joys to children his heart went out at his death the people in one voice said there lies a man I have heard of thee by hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. I want to leave you with this nice Christmas story. And Andy, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas to, to everybody. Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. To the Oddcast. And uh, we got lots of great and fantastic things in store. Merry uh, Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever happy, you celebrate. Happy Pittsburgh. If you don't celebrate happy life, anything. Right? Happy life. You know, just, enjoy the winter. And we will be back with many, many fascinating tales. We got guests lined up that will blow your mind. <laughs> and we got stories that will continue to become the odd, mysterious, and fascinating history of Pittsburgh tales of yore. And without further ado, that's it. Fort Pitt. <laughs>